Hello and welcome back to Triathlon Science presented by Trimechanics Coaching. Once again today we are sponsored by Black Cat Coffee. If you are getting into coffee, if you are already into coffee, if you uh, already buy your coffee freshly roasted from various different roasters, I would urge you to give Black Cat Coffee a try. The reason that I really like Black Cat Coffee um, as compared to a lot of the other roasters that I've had is because the coffees that you can get from David at Black Cat are a little bit unusual. Um, in that they, they tend to go beyond the usual of kind of a Brazilian, maybe darker roast that is often used in espresso, some of the lighter kind of washed coffees. Um, you tend to get a lot of um, natural or sometimes honey processed coffees that David uh, sells. Now, that might have been absolute gobbledygook to a lot of people out there. It probably was. I'd say probably 99% of people have absolutely no idea what a natural coffee is, what a honey processed coffee is. So I thought I'd quickly tell you. So I've discussed this before about the processing involved in coffee and that the idea of kind of washing and then drying to get rid of the cherry that's on the outside um, that you then get into the seed that then gets dried as you've seen those pictures of it kind of drying outside in the sun and it gets sent off in bags and ends up being roasted and it ends up the, the coffee that you would buy from a roaster or the supermarket today. But the, the process that you go through that, that kind of uh, goes into that is actually really important into how the coffee tastes because coffee can taste um, a lot related to the, the soil that it's grown in, the altitude and all the different factors that go into that. But also once you've picked it, you can then process it in different ways. So the traditional or the kind of more, I guess we're always viewed as the, um, it's probably not the traditional, but it's the more uh, common method is to wash off all of the cherry off the outside and then dry that seed out fully. But you can also do things essentially like go through a natural process which which basically um, leads to the slight kind of fermentation um, of the, the coffee bean a little bit more than, than the kind of fully washed process. And then the honey processing is almost an extension of that where you're allowing a little bit more of the, the, the cherry to kind of remain. And it tends to end up with these coffees that have a lot more they tend to have a little bit more sweetness. They tend to have um, odd flavors, often fermented flavors, like winey flavors. Now that may sound terrible. Um, so I actually said to my wife about a coffee that I was really interested in that tastes a little bit like strawberries and that I was hoping that through uh, milk, it would taste a little bit like a Victoria sponge. So, and her kind of first thought was actually that that would be horrible, that actually these coffees can taste absolutely beautiful. A coffee with a kind of berry note in the background, particularly through milk, can taste really, really good. So if you like the idea of that, you like the sound of having some of this something that's a little bit unusual, then go over to Black Cat Coffee. The link is in the show notes. Use the code triathlon10 that will get you 10% off and hopefully you will enjoy some coffees. Please feed back to us about that and feedback to David via the site. He's always um, interested in feedback regarding his coffees, particularly when they're new uh, crops that they bring in every, normally every few months, they get different coffees through. They like to know how things are performing. Okay, so on to today's episode. Now, the main bulk of today's episode is a um, interview, an interview with Matt, our runner, who we spoke to a couple of months ago regarding the kind of restart of his running journey, something that he struggled with a few times because he's always had problems with injuries, problems with niggles, particularly um, in the lower leg. And that's something we wanted to try and avoid this time. So we'll be catching up again with Matt to find out his progress and we'll be essentially looking at seeing what he's currently doing, seeing where needs to be progressed in terms of his sessions and that side of things. But I first want to talk a little bit about a subject that is, I think, is quite close to my heart. It is a subject that is uh, that is often 
avoided potentially um, in the, the kind of podcast realm. I always wanted these podcasts to try and fill um, a little gap that I think are, are things that often aren't discussed, potentially too, too controversial, potentially that the, um, the people just don't want to discuss them because they open a, a huge can of worms. And the idea of weight and running is is one of those elements. It's one of those things where we have to be quite careful about what we what we say. Um, and I think that makes a lot of people want to stay away from those subjects because they're so paranoid about what they might say that it might be misconstrued in the wrong way that they will not only get flack from people listening to it, but they will then feel kind of under threat in terms of their, their kind of reputation. But we can't get away from the fact that weight uh, in our sport, particularly in the running side, is often discussed. And it's often discussed in a very positive light in that if you are lighter, you will run faster. The, la- the relationship, although it is, it has been studied that actually happens in that you lose weight and you run faster. We often have studied that in using things like uh, the anti-gravity treadmills, which essentially have a way of attaching the skirt around your waist, which allows you to essentially run in less gravity. And essentially, um, as I've said, you actually can just take weight off, uh, much like you would do if you actually then lost the weight in real life, in theory. The problem is is that theory and practical don't always marry when it comes to weight loss, particularly as when we actually lose weight, we don't necessarily lose it in the shape of fat. We often lose protein, muscle, um, and then as a result of that, we may actually end up um, going slower overall. We may become more injury prone and all these other factors that often don't really get factored into those kind of studies where they just... um, essentially simulate taking the weight off and having run on an anti-gravity treadmill it is quite incredible the feeling you get from taking a few kilos off but unfortunately as I say in real life that doesn't necessarily translate to the kind of performance that you would measure in that environment. The thing about weight loss is that it is something that has to be well managed if you are going to do it but it also has to be considered in the essentially the potentially negative impacts, particularly on things like your hormones. I think I'm going to do a whole episode discussing this. I think it is something that really needs to be discussed. But I just wanted to start off this episode with a little, essentially a caveat for if things have gone the other way, what can you do about it? So we are now going into kind of three months post Christmas. We are at a stage where um, people may have gained weight. Now, We've gone through a very odd period over the last year. The The lockdown period, the, the multiple lockdown periods have had very different effects on different people. Some people started off, particularly the first lockdown, particularly as it was nice and sunny, with a significant drive to want to lose weight, get healthier and get fitter and feel better. But a lot of that has uh, has waned, particularly over winter, because of the weather turning, because of the, the, the fact that people didn't really want to get out and do things as much. And you don't have to talk to too many people to find out that a lot of people, especially athletes who are used to being relatively lean and fit, have put on a bit of weight during the lockdown periods, partly because I think of a, a lack of motivation. There's an interesting idea around the idea of weight in terms of eating. If you read Stephen Guinea's book, The Hungry Brain, he talks a lot about this, about the fact that if you are to not overreach yourself now, You have to kind of balance up how you think about your future self versus your current self, i.e. your current self says it wants to eat all of those chocolate brownies now because it doesn't know when it's going to get any more energy. Your future self is saying, 
please don't do that. I don't really want to gain any weight. It would impact my health. It may impact my sport. It may impact how I feel about myself. So please uh, measure kind of restraint at this time to not eat all of those brownies. So you're having this constant balance. And there is some good evidence that people that have gained significant weight have a kind of disordered view process of how they view their future self and that they don't value their, their kind of future self's opinion as such and they only value their, their current self's opinion. Obviously, that a lot of that is up for debate. A lot of that comes down to, to kind of different human psychology. But the point being is, is that I think taking away the motivation of potential things like racing and things outside because of what's happened with the coronavirus has made a lot of athletes kind of think, well, what's the point? Why am I trying to stay lean? Why am I trying to potentially lose weight? Because we might not even be racing. And it's, unfortunately, that can sometimes have an effect of them going the other way of thinking, well, things are a bit rubbish. So I'm going to have a bit of the kind of what is very short term validation and feel good factor of having something really nice to eat to make myself feel better. And we may have ended up in a situation where we've gained a few kilos. So in terms of running, it does have an impact. It has a big impact. I'm going to tell you why now and why you need to or how you need to alter your running in order to be able to deal with that. The first thing is not to panic because the problem with gaining weight is we often then panic and we try and do something about it and often potentially that makes things worse. It makes us feel worse about ourselves. We might even do things like reduce our running or our training because we just generally feel a bit rubbish, particularly if we're out going for a run and suddenly things don't feel quite the way they used to. I'll tell you why that is though. So the thing about the human body is extremely well tuned. So the way I like it or the way I think about it sometimes is in relation to something like a Formula One car. Formula One cars are tuned to the nth degree. And we know that various elements of the car, particularly things like suspension and all these things are tuned to the rider, sorry, the, the driver's weight. So it's all tuned to that. So that if you were to have two different drivers on a team, they have completely different car setups, all the different systems. So if you were to swap cars, they would have to go through a bit like, as I say, if you're on a bike, having things like your um, the, the kind of seat tube height and the saddle height and all these different factors tuned to the, the rider's body um, anatom sorry, anatomical positions and all that side of things. So why does that matter? Well, when we land, when we land, when we run, we essentially uh, kind of go through this process of using the muscles like struts to be able to kind of hold on to the Achilles tendon as a good example to enable us to generate the kind of recoil energy in the springs, so to speak. This process is highly tuned and it doesn't necessarily change all that quickly when the conditions change in that if you gain weight, it's a little bit like putting a heavier driver in that car. The suspension and everything that is tuned perfectly to the other driver just doesn't work as well. Now, it doesn't not work. That driver could probably still drive that car, but actually it may rub on the bottom of the road because they're so close to the tarmac and all these side of things. And our body is a little bit like that. So what you might notice is things like your calves start burning a little bit. Now, the calf is one of the primary muscles involved in that strut system of it basically holds the kind of other end of the Achilles tendon that's not attached to the bottom of your foot and allows you to generate that recoil energy or essentially charge the spring as you're landing, as you're weight bearing, as you're staying on the ground and then that explosion of that spring that re kind of reuses that energy. 
Now the car's ability to do that is all related to how much force is going in there and it's understanding of how much that force is related to your body weight that can become quite important. If you've gone through a process of gaining a little bit of weight, particularly if that weight gain has happened over a very short period of time and that we haven't had that adaption period, even a few kilos can make a big difference. You also have to understand the relationship back to things like running injury. Now, what causes running injury is still, I'm going to say debated because it is obviously multifactorial. There's lots of different elements that go into it, but we likely know that it is related to essentially increased damage in tissues that are not allowed to recover. Now, is the predominant thing the inability to recover? Is it that we are causing too much damage? It's likely that the absolute impact forces are not the, the key thing here, but it could potentially be the impact forces over the kind of training load, i.e. if you are impacting again and again and again, i.e. increasing training load, increasing your distance, then that could have an impact. When you take larger strides, and land with essentially more force in those larger strides. Um, you are running essentially faster, you are landing with more force, more impact force, then that could cause more risk of injury. It could gradually increase that damage within those structures and actually um, meaning that your, your uh, need to recover is greater and if you don't take that elements of recovery or even during the kind of run itself, then you can cause more damage that could tip you over that, that kind of balance into the injury side of things. So what you need to do, and I remember there was a book that I think Matt Fitzgerald wrote about this, is that if you have gained weight, you need to reduce your running mileage and potentially reduce your running speed because those are the factors that are going to play into that. So your running mileage will contribute to the chip, chip, chip away type side of the that kind of um, essentially that overload of those tendons or those uh, structures in that it will just add chips to that. So even if you went very, very slowly, you're still loading that tissue. But obviously running faster as well increases that impact force. So though each individual chip is a, a little bit larger. So we need to bear that in mind. So if you have gained a little bit of weight, don't worry about it. Just try and do things as I say, like reducing the length of your runs, potentially reducing the speed of your run and gradually keep an eye on your weight. And as your weight changes, if it does change, if you are doing the right things, then you can gradually move back towards what you used to do before. But try and avoid the idea of essentially jumping straight into what you did before as a method of trying to lose that weight, because actually you end, might end up becoming injured and you, that may end up being more counterproductive. So we're gonna go on to the interview now. Um, I hope you enjoy our chat with Matt. The few things that we mentioned about are going to be uh, the point at which he's now progressed in terms of his training and able to do those short runs that we were discussing before. If you haven't listened to the first interview, I'd suggest you go back and listen to that to get an idea of the background and what we're discussing. And then uh, I hope you'll find some things from it, some little tips that may encourage or may help you develop your running if you're at the point where you're running relatively frequently and you're able to do the shorter runs and you want to see what kind of progression you can make from there. So welcome back to the podcast, Matt. So Matt is our runner that we spoke to, a, I can't actually remember the number, I think it was a few podcasts ago, um, about his kind of almost like a restart into his running journey. So we're catching up again with Matt. So hopefully he's got some questions uh, that he's kind of found along the way um, since he's been trying a few of those things. And uh, we'll kind of jump straight in. So what do you want to start off with, Matt? Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, just to kind of um, bring up to speed with, with where I'm at. So it, the running has been 
has been fantastic, um, to be honest. Um, no issues at all. Um, I progressed really slowly. First of all, I was doing, you know, on and off, like a, a run, walk, um, kind of kind of build up. Um, and then over five, six, um, probably seven weeks, I've now built up to um, three decent runs or non-stop runs a, a week. Each now is around 40 minutes long. Um, just take it nice and easy. Um, and yeah, things are, things are progressing uh, really well. So uh, I guess from, from, from my point of view is how do I keep progressing it it's not necessarily about going longer and longer each time um because eventually i will run out of time yes um, that, that i can that i can allocate um to uh, a single session so it's maybe how to progress some of these runs to be faster or more intense um uh, over over and above let's just say a, a steady run more leaning into the terms of, I guess, a workout rather than just a, a steady run. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, at the moment, um, so if you just go over what, so let's, let's go over what you, what would be a kind of normal week for you in terms of the runs you're doing, um, the length and um, the kind of the intensity, should we say? Yeah. So I run three, like three days. Um, depends how, how my work week goes. Um, but there would definitely be, um, one rest day between, so it might be a Tuesday, a Thursday, and then one at the one at the weekend. Um, I might look to get another run in, so maybe maybe four days a week. Um, but at the moment they're just just around forty minutes, so a bit of a warm up, five to ten minutes, or certainly five minutes at home, doing some more uh, dynamic stretches, lunges, squats, uh, and those sorts of things. Five minutes steady warm up walking a slow jog um and then say a 40 minute run period in the section and then uh, a five to ten minute walk home from wherever that that period has, uh, has stopped from so yeah that three days a week from intensity point of view um i would consider it aerobic maybe more from a cycling point of view and from a heart rate zone uh, perspective, it's probably more in that sort of tempo kind of no man's land um, uh, kind of uh, kind of intensity. But it, no sort of ill effects from that. I don't feel fatigued the next day. Um, no muscle ache uh, at all. Um, as as I recover from it, and it, it seems to be going going quite well. So yeah, just trying to position some of these um, runs to maybe have some sort of objective rather than just going out to complete the time, then uh, uh, and see what see what see what we could do. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's the thing is, is that with there's there's a lot of factors um, that we kind of need to to bring in that kind of dictate can dictate where you go from here. Um, because I mean, I've always said uh, with regards to particularly, so let's say in kind of theory, you were a complete beginner runner um, and you hadn't, you didn't have the background of fitness and that all of these things, I mean, it, it would obviously, 
I'd be I'd be pleased or kind of impressed of getting up towards that kind of 40 minute runs without any ill effects for someone that was starting off as a beginner. Obviously, we know in your case that you weren't a complete beginner. So it's a different situation. It was more kind of um, taking some of that fitness that you gained from the bike, bringing it over to a different sport, but also giving the the, the muscles, the tendons, everything time to kind of catch up. Um, and so obviously we get to that point with, with your kind of beginner runners, they essentially, uh, I'm always trying to hold back from them thinking too much about what, what am I, you know, kind of tr- going to try and do or kind of specific sessions, particularly initially. Um, because you, as I say, it pushes people into kind of, as I say, often doing very specific sessions, whereas actually they just need to make sure they just enjoy what they're doing um, and doing it really as essentially as often as possible. So that's the first thing is that the running responds, I've always felt running responds best to more frequency. The difficulty obviously with frequency is uh, is fitting it in um, and, and fitting the actual um, runs in. in uh, I mean, it, if you think, like, as you say, if you're doing it kind of Tuesday, Thursday and, uh, you know, kind of one at the weekend, the ideal would be to, to running almost every day in terms of that that kind of learning um, ability. But chopping down to shorter runs kind of every day is often not something that works well in, in most people's schedules um, because of work and particularly if work is kind of moving around and isn't into a set kind of pattern. But that obviously could be one option, would be adding an additional run. Mm-hmm. Because that in itself is going to do two things. It's going to do it's going to increase that frequency, um, but also at the same time, obviously increasing the the kind of the the volume, the training load side of things. You've done really well to to gradually kind of build up, and I think I mean just go off on a, a kind of slight tangent of something you mentioned about kind of going to that kind of no man's land. I think I I've always thought both particularly on the cycling side of things, but also to some degree on the running, that that doesn't necessarily exist in that um, it potentially could if you were somebody had ample amounts of time and uh, you were looking kind of a long-term goal of, of kind of gradually building up, building up the kind of systems of the body, building up the, the kind of um, the, the tendons, the muscles, everything, then you got that benefit from potentially going kind of longer or increasing the, the kind of essentially impact loading. And at that point, you then have to start considering whether going into that kind of tempo zone is inhibiting that. Okay. Yeah. If you don't have obviously that amount of volume and you have built into it, I don't think there's anything, there's definitely nothing wrong with being there. I think it's interesting. I've just finished um, a book called um, Out of Thin Air, which is a, a it's all it's a, I think the author is Michael Crawley, who's a runner himself and an anthropologist. And he spent over a year with the Ethiopian runners. So it's one of these books, a little bit like Running with the Kenyans, which is another kind of similar book, but looking at the Ethiopians that have a slightly different running culture. And I like reading these books because they give you ideas, but they they show you've got this, you know, incredibly successful um, nation, essentially, from running side of things. Um, And you start, you pick up things, you pick up um, their kind of the way that they think about things. And often the way that they approach things like training is rather than being from a scientific standpoint, they do it from experience and what they've kind of personally learned, but also what they've learned from other runners over the years and years um, and they actually kind of almost put it back to when um, 
uh, the the name has completely escaped me now. I can't believe I've forgotten. But the Ethiopian runner that ran the Rome Marathon um, barefoot, so it's kind of stemming from from his legacy. But also we've got people like Kinesi Bekele, um, incredibly fast um, and probably one of the best long distance runners that's ever existed. But in reading the book, you get a few things from them or from the way that they train. Yes, they do a lot of running, particularly they do a lot of running in, in a forest. They do that. There's got very um, it's almost almost so extreme in its terrain um, and the that it actually is almost sometimes like scrambling rather than actually running. And they always take the hardest path. They don't they, they focus on the basically spending time in a very difficult environment. And they also do the speed work and they do tempo work. But what they don't necessarily do, and this is the thing I've taken from them, is they're not fearful of, of pushing things a bit. And they're not fearful of pushing to tempo. And they're not fearful of... Um, using those intensities if they feel like they can so if they feel like they don't want to or they do or they feel like their body needs some more rest and recovery they drop the intensity down does that make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. so so i think that's the thing is that we often particularly if we've kind of been listening to a lot of the more recent stuff around things like polarized training we almost develop a negative fear of going into that tempo zone because we we instantly think that by going in there it's going to inhibit our other training. Well, yes, if you're potentially if you're an elite athlete doing huge of mileage, then doing some tempo work might uh, at the wrong time may inhibit some of your other training. But if you're limited to a, a a smaller amount of training per week and you you feel that you want to do it and you feel like you can do that slightly higher intensity, um, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. So that's the kind of other thing to bear in mind, um, I think, when it comes to this, is that um, is to try make sure we're not kind of attaching a, a negative kind of label to, to doing that. So in terms of the kind of sessions itself, obviously, we've got we've got a few variables you can kind of play with. Obviously, we've got length of session, which will be one option. Um, but actually, if you're already getting towards the kind of 40 minutes to an hour for a run, personally, unless you have goals um, in the the relatively short term future of marathon distance distances or where you're going to need significant mileage, then I don't necessarily think that the adding more volume is is going to be that useful. Um, probably be a good chance actually for, to revisit um, your your kind of what you see as your goals in running because that will probably dictate where we go from here. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't really before I started ru running. I hadn't really thought about um, any particular goal. Um, but when I, when I was cycling, I was um, one of the things that I really wanted to tick off was um, a twenty minute, ten mile time trial. And it took me a good few years to get there, and it's something that that that, that I did tick off and something that i had thought about and is probably quite quite a stretch from where i am at the moment is maybe to add a 20 minute 5k time just as a target or something to uh to play around with and and to aim for that doesn't involve like you say um, potentially huge mileage but just gives me something to um target and um just to keep Keep myself accountable really um maybe to to something um and head to head towards that yeah i think i think that is absolutely perfect it was going to be something that i was going to suggest because 
the thing about 5k um just to think of it as the distance itself and the time as you say it's a little bit like a 10 mile time trial in that um it has it's a time period that is kind of long enough to 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 really almost kind of hit the maximal points of the different systems but also at the same time it's not so long that you will and you're unable to kind of get the best out of it without a lot of potentially a lot of volume um but at the same time going the other way it's not so short particularly on the running side of things i have people sometimes that want to kind of have a goal in the mile and the mile is a an incredibly difficult distance to perfect and often requires a significant dollop of natural ability strength speed and things that actually when you get to a certain age you're probably not going to develop as much you there's still potential and i know people that have gone into kind of doing that shorter distances in their their later years but they still have potentially goals of maybe going beyond that whereas the 5k well, it fits this nice middle ground of you can often do you know you can approach it in lots of different ways um there are people that just muscle it out and there are people that have that run it the same speed essentially with beautiful finesse and elasticity um the other great thing about it is the accessibility unfortunately i i'd love to be saying this in a time where we're not in the kind of pandemic and hopefully obviously we, we seem to be coming out the other side because we'll hopefully be getting park run back relatively soon and hopefully in a situation where um we'll, we'll actually be able to, to run it properly it's definitely something i've thought of me personally because it was park run and being able to just wander down on a saturday morning to a venue that could be just down the road i mean they're literally everywhere now the ability to then run a, a 5k that gets recorded the run it each week against other people in a slightly kind of competitive setting is just perfect um, because it gives us that ability to obviously repeat it um, and have it kind of measured but it often gives us something to as you say something to um, to work towards because this is often I, I think sometimes the problem with um, with people that that starts doing something like running do something or cycling and have no goals in mind is as eventually other things start um, kind of winning, shall we say, in that without that, you know, we, we as humans, we are, we're very goal driven. You know, at the end of the day, almost, you know, we, our goals used to be very daily, you know, kind of for go and find food or possibly long term of reproduce. Um, and we, we kind of held on to that in that we, we, um, we think we, we kind of dream a lot. We think of the future a lot and we need and we want goals partly because those goals of um, of finding food are are seemingly not as important or they're not as important as they were because it's not as difficult. But we have our things like our career goals and various other things, and we, we do focus on the future a lot. Sometimes I think at our cost of not enjoying the, uh, the present, but it's definitely something always to, to kind of have in the back of mind. So so that's great. So so kind of 5K um, and kind of aiming for a, a good time point, I think is perfect. So in regards to that, so we think back to the, the kind of sessions that we could do. So yeah. it'd be good. One thing would be good to be is to start getting a little bit of speed work in. I think if you've developed to the point where you're um, you have done enough kind of volume on your tendons, essentially to that they've kind of caught up, we can start adding a bit of speed work because it's definitely something that has to be held back to a certain degree. Um, because as obviously as we increase the the kind of speed of our movement the speed of our running uh we do increase that impact loading 
So it starts that we have to kind of make sure, and this is why it was so important, is to make sure that we have that that base, um, and that essentially we have the from what I'm viewing as as in regards to the tendons, the um, and everything, and that and the biomechanical and that side of things. So we've got kind of a few options with regards to that. So your if your runs are you're going to you know your those three runs, there's no reason you can't. Um, include a little bit of intensity in at least two of them so what would probably be good is to have one that was more a kind of fartlek style so what um so you i know that you obviously live in quite a flat area are all the runs that you do around your kind of area on flat on the, the tarmac no not necessarily i can i can turn in two directions go left and down um, out onto um, out onto marshland which is completely flat or I can turn right um, which is essentially down or up into the Kent Downs and um, so it can be hilly or rolling whichever whichever course I can take so I can tailor the terrain to um, whatever I, I really need it to be. Okay, so I mean, having access to a good a good hill that you can do some repetitions on is would be really beneficial. So I, I mean, I'm I'm a massive fan of of particularly at this phase, um, doing short hill reps. There's actually a, a run, um, quite well known run, where I'm from in Leeds, um, called the Normans, um, just because it is a there's a there's a quite well-known road that goes down into Leeds called Kirkstall Road is actually known on the running side of things because it's the um, probably the fastest 10 mile sorry fastest 10k route in the country um, and is often um, flocked with various runners trying to go below 30 minutes when they do the run the Abbey Dash along it in um, in October but along the just on the kind of side of it as you go through into Kirkstall to Leeds there is a set of hills and they are I, I think there are um, eight of them that are all in line. It's a really kind of odd situation. They're all they're all next to each other within about kind of each road is maybe 10, 15 metres apart with rows of houses. And they're almost perfect for the short, sharp hill reps. They're about, I'd say no less, no, sorry, no more than about 50, 60 metres long, relatively steep. Um, and you kind of run them, the, the actual kind of set essentially is 15 times through and that you run them through and then back through them again. And they're perfect for that kind of um, the kind of short, sharp hill reps that really start to work the hip flexors, particularly the the kind of knee drive um, that can really be beneficial for kind of taking on the next level of of kind of development in the kind of running side of things, particularly with regards to speed. So, have you got? Have you, can you think of a, a hill kind of close by that would be kind of relatively steep, but about fifty to hundred meters long? Yeah, there's, there's certainly one. It's probably um, about two kilometres from here, so I guess that could be um, uh, a warm-up phase, and then uh, and then go to it. It's probably a touch longer than that, um, maybe double that distance, maybe two hundred metres. But I could obviously turn. Uh, uh, it does flatten out in the middle, so I can use that as a as a turnaround area before before heading back down. Yeah, that perfect. Because the thing about it, so when it comes to hills, it's the re- the way that we generally break them up is just is simply short and long, and that they f- they form two very different purposes. The same way that if you're on the track, you'd have you know as a distance runner. When I was younger on the track, we spent a lot of time doing you know hundred, two hundred, three hundred meter reps. 
Um, and they had a very specific purpose. They were normally done at a speed above race speed uh, with relatively, it depends, sometimes it was harder with, with long recoveries and sometimes it was, we were doing 300 meter reps with just 100 meter kind of jog to complete the lap. Um, and it was a very different um, type of repetition than you would do, say, 400s or 800s or um, or 1.2K repetitions. And it's the same goes for short and long hills. Um, your long hills and your long repetitions, so sim- this is something that that same hill could potentially be used for later on, give you the ability to do minutes at a, at a higher intensity um, and developing the kind of move- moving towards the kind of VO2 max type region. Whereas using that kind of part of the hill to be able to do a short kind of sharp hill rep is is perfect for now. It forms, this starts to form um, where we go from utilizing, like, so we, we've, we've set out this, what I've kind of called this base for running. Now I view it, when we, when we talk about base, everyone thinks of different things. In the cycling side of things, we often think of it as a kind of aerobic base. With running, it's for me it's it's the kind of combination of aerobic and um and particularly how you know the muscle tendons the biomechanics and that side of things the integrity of the tissues once we've set that base we're in the phase now where we we hopefully will be using when we're going on a run and particularly if we're relatively uh, running relatively uh, slowly um with lots of small steps we'll be using a high proportion of the kind of elasticity and that recoil in order to then increase the the speed we get to the point where we have to use not only that elasticity but also muscle energy okay so we have to kind of essentially start driving because so to take it to back to kind of real basics of how we you know we think about running we um we often think when we're running that we are i think a lot of people think they're probably driving against the ground if that makes sense they're kind of basically pushing themselves along does that that make sense yeah. so they kind of think they're pushing themselves along. and this this might be the case if you are sprinting for instance so if you're sprinting you're a proportion of that um is going to be pushing almost down to the ground and then you're going to be what's called kind of triple extension so at that point you're pushing down to the ground with kind of triple extension and you are extending at the hip so that means essentially the hip is the the leg is kind of going backwards relative to the hip you're extending at the knee, so essentially straightening the leg, and then you're going to extend at the ankle joint, which is essentially um, dorsiflexion, which is, um, sorry, not dorsiflexion, plantiflexion, which is pushing down essentially into the ground to generate that force. And that triple extension, that is why you see these sprinters who have extended and they have this kind of almost beautifully almost straightened leg behind them with the, the, the toes pointing downwards as they've extended at the hip, knee, and an ankle joint to propel themselves forward in distance running things are a little different in that we rely a lot more on the recoil energy as we land and that a lot of that extension is partly from the muscle side of things but a lot of it is from the elasticity to kind of use that spring system to regenerate essentially and reuse energy if we didn't use that when we ran distances we'd fatigue extremely quickly when we're running relatively slowly and relatively kind of small steps we should be using a high proportion of that and a relatively low amount of that kind of that muscle energy as we then increase the speed so we're thinking about 
regards to things like 5k and we and, and gaining a bit more speed what we actually have to do is we have to um kind of almost put more energy into that kind of impact and that recoil system and the way we do that is by driving the knee higher which means that we have essentially we we drive it up and then we bring it down with more force does that make some sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah. So yeah. this is the thing. So I remember watching a video of a, a track coach trying to explain this to her runners using the analogy of or having a, a bouncy kind of rubber ball to describe it. In that as you lift the ball higher and higher and as you put more and essentially lifting it higher to enable you to throw it down harder with more force, you get more recoil. And that is something that is that is often missed. And I think it's a real problem with the with distance running and with with um the runners that are particularly have been led to believe that that for that things like impact are bad and that cushioning in shoes is meant to reduce impact and it's interesting i've just finished um a running book which is it's i'd recommend to all runners to read um and it's called the lost art of running by um shane benzie and it's all about this idea it's all about this idea that we've We've been kind of almost, um, we've been given the wrong information, particularly when it, when it comes to things like shoes. And it has developed this either conscious or unconscious fear of impact. And therefore, when we try and run, we almost run and try and land very softly. And and as a result, we, we sit down and we try and absorb all that impact. Whereas actually, the impact is really important and it's something we need to harness. And the faster, in order to run faster, we need to essentially generate more impact. So rather than pushing harder, we have to almost generate that as essentially that that knee drive that allows us to then hit the ground harder. Does that does that make some sense? Yeah, 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 yeah I get that. So what we can then do is we can start. We need to start thinking about what are the um, elements of our body and our the way we run that enable us to do that. And the primary element is, can we drive the knee up harder and harder and faster and faster? That gives us our ability to do that. So that's the first phase, shall we say. And one of the best ways of doing that is by doing hill repetitions. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to that, that hill. And you're going to try and get to that kind of that kind of middle point. But you're going to do it running really, essentially, I want to say easily. As easily as it can be going up a hill but I want you to try and keep the, the running cadence, the number of steps really high. And I want you to think just about driving the arms and driving the knees. Okay? Yeah. So the arms coordinate the knees uh, or the legs. And that's another thing that's often um, kind of missed essentially is that we, so it goes back to the fact that when we, um, when we can kind of control our movement, a lot of what we do um particularly lower in the body and, and and a lot of these kind of innate movements, they're not fully under our control in terms of our things like our coordination and balance. A lot of it happens actually in the spinal cord. It doesn't A lot of it doesn't even make it to the brain for us to control. And the way that we balance when we run, particularly throwing our weight around, is we, we essentially use our arms to kind of counterbalance. And a lot of the movement that we generate and the essentially the um, the coordination between the legs and the arms is driven by our kind of conscious movement of the arms that then unconsciously moves the legs. Okay. So that's why we have to use the arms and actually focusing on driving 
the arms with a really quick movement. So the other thing that really helps with this is having quite a high arm carry. So one of the, the things I used to see with people that really struggled to increase their running cadence, um, and they were down in the kind of 150s, 160s at the very most, and this kind of long loping stride, is they were holding their arms quite low and out to the sides with relatively straight arms. So as a result of that, if you think about it from a purely kind of physics point of view, that created quite two long pendulums that were quite hard to get moving quickly. So what I want you to do is kind of is keep the elbows quite bent, keep the hands. The hands should move at this point between roughly where the nipples are and the kind of sides of the waist. Okay? okay. So that's the kind of movement. So if you do it kind of, you know, it's obviously we're talking on a podcast, it's very difficult to to get these kind of things over that will be easy to show in the visual side of things. But if you try and kind of hold that position and see where that is, that you if you put your hands, your essentially your so you should have your forearm, sorry, your upper arm kind of almost in line with your side, and the elbow should be around your kind of waist, and your hand should be around where your nipple is. That's actually quite a bent elbow if you do that now. It actually, yeah, that's the kind of position we're talking about. And actually, the, then all the almost all the movement comes at the shoulder by driving the elbow back. So the hand and the wrist and the, that position stays relatively fixed. The elbow almost the bend in the elbow stays relatively fixed, and we drive back and forward. That takes our hand from roughly that position around the nipple to roughly that position around the waist. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got so it's it's a relatively you know, it's a quick, short movement. But what you'll find, and you can do this and anyone that's listening at home can have a practice with this, is try dropping the arm down and moving that long pendulum of an arm, particularly if you allow the elbow to bend and kind of flex. Um, you create this long pendulum that's really hard to get moving. And it's quite a lot of energy, but also it's very slow moving. Whereas actually, I mean, a good example of this, I will show, used to show a picture of um, Alistair Brownlee, the triathlete, because he has a very high and fast arm carry as do a lot of these distance runners and they actually carry their arms often a lot higher than most of us do because it allows them then to have this choppy short movement of the kind of elbow back that allows them to have a short choppy movement of the knee drive that is what they're going for so that's what i want you to do i want you to focus on that and i want you to ideally get to that 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 top point of the hill the middle point having not really got out of breath which is a very different way that most people would approach hill reps. Hill reps are often viewed as this, I've got to kind of brutalize the hill. And yes, if we go for the kind of long ones, eventually that is going to be hard work. You're going to be reaching the top feeling like you've really, really worked. Whereas this is a completely different style of hill rep. This is using it as this kind of biomechanical tool to focus on a very rapid knee drive. And then as you hit the ground, I want you to be thinking of lifting the legs up as opposed to pushing them down. Because that's another thing, particularly when we get tired, when people are doing hills, they start pushing into the hill to try and almost push themselves up it. And you can just see that their their running cadence drops lower and lower and lower as they get more and more fatigued. And that essentially is just fatiguing those muscles in a way that we don't really want to use them. You know, we don't really want to um, practice, you know, it probably might be beneficial for cycling because that's a quite a lot of what the cycling position movement is, is that extension with pushing down. 
but we don't really want that for running, so we don't really want to train it. Okay? Okay, yeah. So yeah, so that definitely could form one of those sessions. So I will probably do that of one of those runs in the week, kind of a nice kind of gradual warm up, make sure you're fully warmed up, then go to that hill and do as I say, you're you know, you're looking at maybe ten to twenty of these short, sharp repetitions. I particularly when you start off, I would err on the side of caution, but I would do it as if you were doing, I mean, I often say this with things like swimming drills. As soon as you start to feel like you're maybe fatiguing and losing the form element, then that's when you stop. Um, because the key thing about this is we don't want to program any tired patterns in. Um, but also at that point, or if we're starting to fatigue, we're going to start losing what we're trying to achieve. Okay. Yeah. The other thing to bear in mind with this is how you go down the hill. So when you go down, I want you to, you can, you can either walk, although that, that elongates things a little bit too much. And I think is potentially over cautionary. I want you to go down really, really slowly and really easily by taking lots and lots of little steps. Because actually, that those little little steps going downhill can actually be quite a good, um, and again, a good training method. If you're if you're at this point which we believe you are now, where you've you've got that good integrity in the tendons, um, then you'll be fine doing that. And that little bit of extra impact that you get from going downhill and that body weight could actually be quite beneficial. But you have to make sure that it is little short steps and not big kind of bounding. So that's what people often do is they, particularly if they are again, this is another great reason why you stop before you fatigue is that if you fatigue, like people that get to the top of the hill and they're so fatigued, but they kind of almost are trying to catch up on the next repetition, they then start relaxing and they kind of lollop their way down the hill, causing this huge impact again and again. And whilst impact is not something to be feared, having a large impact in that way is definitely something to be avoided if we're, we're doing this kind of training, okay? Yeah. So that's the, that's the plan for that session. So doing kind of 10 to 20, you'll get to a point where you'll do something like 20 and you, you'll feel, well, you know, can I do, can I start pushing more and more and doing more of them? Again, there's a point where you're the kind of diminishing returns. You're at that point. I think you're, if you get to a point where you're doing about 20 of them, you're, you've done really well. And I think actually then to focus on, on that point, you then just, you repeat it as it's a kind of practicing, you're not, you know, you're not trying to push more and more. You're just trying to, to kind of get that practice element in. Okay. Yeah. So, because actually, eventually, just to, to kind of elongate this a little bit, you what you might end up doing is doing a set of short reps and then a set of long reps. So the short reps warming things up and practicing that that kind of that knee drive, and then you, the, the long reps when you fully warmed up, the potential to add that kind of VO two max element on top. Because again, the thing about you know when you're thinking about running training, when you're thinking about time press training is that there's always a capacity to, to bring in different elements that you're looking for that you, and I, I'm not, I never believed this idea that we have to focus on one system or focus on one element per session, because that can then lead us, or it can leave us with, with not enough sessions or time, but also there's no reason why we can't practice something like a, a skill and then take it to doing, you know, using it as a tool in the long hill. Okay. So that'd be a good option for that one session. Um, the other session, the other option is, is starting to think about rather than having this um, going out for a kind of homogenous 40 minutes where we maybe gradually increase and get up towards tempo and then hold there, we can do a progression run, which I think is always a really nice way of, you can do this as kind of short, I used to do a nice kind of short version of this where you ran um, 400 
uh, meter reps kind of continuously going gradually going from kind of easy pace through tempo and up to kind of almost VO2 max pace. Um, but you can do a kind of tempo kind of version where you just take your run and, and kind of separate it into blocks. You can either run it multiple times through or you can do it as a single kind of gradual progression. But if you work through kind of going from, let's say, 10 minutes um, kind of building up or actually, I mean, it might be actually better thinking about it to do a kind of a, a shorter progression. So doing something like a, a nice kind of 10 minute warm up, making sure, you know, getting everything right in terms of the movements, gradually feel like, as I say, you're you're running a nice way that you um, feel comfortable. And then doing kind of either five or 10 minute blocks where you gradually increase the effort going from kind of the, that kind of endurance relatively easy effort through into kind of tempo through to kind of threshold and then a little bit above threshold okay okay yeah yeah so it's i i mean the difficulty with this is is a lot of people want to judge this on and you can judge it on on speeds and use things like gps i think personally i like it to be a kind of almost like a feeling as a as opposed to, and, 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 on, and focused on kind of perceived exertion rather than um looking at speeds because they can change day on day and they obviously they change based on the terrain. So maybe kind of going kind of, as I say, you can run through it once and you can, or you can do it twice. So maybe five minutes. So let's say five minutes and endurance, five minutes moving into that kind of tempo range, five minutes around where you'd be looking to for your five to 10 K kind of distance. And then five minutes kind of a little faster than you would do for your 5 K side of things. Okay. Like have it as a feeling so so initially now because we're just only starting to really add to the kind of speed work is is kind of doing it with those shorter blocks the reason i quite like doing them kind of five minutes to start off with is because if you make a bit of a mistake uh, or kind of a, a go a little bit too hard too soon should we say um it gives you you don't kind of overdo it too much if you're doing relatively shorter blocks but that kind of that progression gradually increasing the speed and having that kind of five minutes so having a you know your watch on that just gives you a an alert or something after five minutes just slightly increase the effort a little bit keep it another five minutes slightly increase the effort give it another five minutes and then you can go back through that again so let's say you that's so that's 20 minutes for that uh, that section it might be that you um kind of do a bit of warm-up but the first kind of five minutes can be part of that as well and then you gradually progress up that through that once and then potentially again, and eventually get to the point maybe where you're doing, where it's essentially the whole run is basically just 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, gradually working through that. So that's another option for a 40 minute run will be just gradually working up through the, the gears, should we say. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really good. Something that, that I can easily, um, easily, easily put in. Um, obviously, one of the one of the things that I, I probably was uh, really guilty of when I would started running last time was trying to do too much too soon um and that caused um a few of the the injury problems and it's obviously something that i'm cautious of not repeating is it best maybe to prioritize if i was going to look to add volume or speed which one should take priority i think i mean at the stage you're at now I think I'd be I'd be more focused on the, the adding a little bit of speed work, um, because I think that the thing about 
volume. Again, the thing the thing often we view when it comes to volume um, is that we we think that even if it's easy, which is this is the, this would be to say, if um, if you could get someone to guarantee that they were running extremely easy, even then, vo- adding more volume isn't a safe bet. I think we often view it as increasing volume. If it's nice and easy with running, we should be fine. It probably is with cycling, for instance, because cycling is non-weight bearing and adding a bit more volume, particularly if it is definitely easy, particularly as we often have an objective measure in a power meter, is a safe bet. Running is different because running always involves between two and three times our body weight in impact. Because of that, this is, and this is a, thing, a statement I've made so many times, there is no such thing as a recovery run. It doesn't exist because you can't recover whilst loading your body and your muscles and your tendons that much. If you are aching and you're going out for an easy run to recover from that aching, I think you've completely missed the point. I think you're actually better off, particularly beginners are better off hopping on a bike to massage the muscles essentially or move the muscles with with less impact loading or just going for a walk because a walking will take you down to more one and a half one to one and a half times your body weight with that in mind that brings us back to your question is that kind of adding more volume is actually can sometimes be more dangerous because actually what it can do is it can, if you, people will add, they'll easily add, you know, like we said before, is that, you know, the, the thing we talked about in the last conversation is how 30 minutes sounds like a short run. So they do, you know, they'll, they'll do more than that. And actually this idea of doing even five minutes seems ludicrous. We'll often add more volume. And I get people in that have no ambitions on the marathon at all, yet they very proudly work their way up to kind of over two hours. But after they did that two hour run on, on Sunday, they could. They didn't function for a week, and it, that to me starts thinking. Well, I, I think you might have missed the point. Um, unless you have to do the volume, because you have to do some, you know, or essentially train yourself to be able to run a long distance, because you're going to have to do that in the the race that you've decided you want to do. I don't think there's a need to actually go towards it beyond a certain point. I think for someone that's focusing on short distance, you're actually better off potentially including that little bit of speed work. That's actually almost safer in a shorter run than you potentially are from adding more volume. Does that make some sense? Yeah, 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 yeah that makes sense. So, I mean, that's the thing is that, and I think that's what I, I you know, kind of want to stress to people when they're particularly doing the, the kind of shorter stuff is that actually you're, not only is that got to be elements that have to come in, that speed work, um, but a little bit of that intensity, um, but also your, your ability for those, as you say, the, the, the kind of, I say the, the kind of tendons and everything to deal with that load is partly, as I say, related to the volume that you, you put them through during that session. Um, Cause this also becomes to a recovery side of things as well, to go off on a just ever so slight tangent and thinking about in terms of where you position the runs and recovery. The problem we often find um, with recovery in particular regards to running is that if we overdo things a little bit, the recovery then recovery we then need from that is often elongated, um, and often we end up not recovering properly before we go into our let's say our next run. And this is again coming back to that kind of volume side is the amount of times I see people running ridiculously long on say a weekend, and they're not really recovering fully ready for the kind of run again on on Tuesday. 
And then what they could have done is if they brought back that just within within kind of reasonable limits on the weekend, they would have recovered fully ready to go and actually got more out of their sessions in the week. And as opposed to going into them with a much higher injury risk because they haven't enabled their their kind of body to fully recover. Whereas I say, adding a little bit of speed work might just slightly increase that that body weight and that impact for those brief periods during that speed work but actually overall they're probably still going to recover better than if they added 15 20 minutes onto a run that actually maybe maybe won't do them any good okay yeah no makes um it it does make sense i think i i like particularly if people have a if people haven't got ambitions for a marathon, then I often find that, that 40 minutes to an hour is about perfect to build up towards. I think if people are really struggling to get beyond kind of 30 minutes and have ambitions for doing longer things, maybe, you know, kind of, you know, then then that sometimes becomes a bit of a problem. But also, often I view it as a, what does that then show about how they're moving? If, they, if they're still struggling to move beyond 30 minutes without feeling broken the next day. But if they're in the range of about 40 minutes and they come back and they feel fine and the next day they, they, they're they not in bits at all and they, they feel absolutely fine to run again, then that's a really good sign. And that's the point where you say, right, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take my, what I've done and I'm now going to, you know, work in a slightly different way i've i've achieved i've got to the point where i can do that that level of volume and impact and i'm going to now work with that as opposed to this this idea of continually trying to almost push it a little bit further it's actually something i often see just just a thought cross my mind is um regards things like fasted training and particularly fasted cycling it's that's something that, that has become more and more popular um because people view it as a way of potentially increasing gains. And I can't, I, I literally cannot um, say the amount of times I've seen people that, that do a fasted ride on the bike and their goal is to basically go longer and longer. And they see that as a real achievement. They see that as you know doing five hours on water and coming back almost completely broken as a kind of massive achievement. And I think, well, what are you trying to actually achieve? I think if you got to the point where you can, go out for a ride for an hour let's say or two without any any nutrition or anything on board and water and you feel absolutely fine you've proven that you have good metabolic flexibility that you can switch over to using fat as a fuel predominantly and you've, you've achieved what you're trying to achieve you've shown that you can do that you and you now work on a different element but we often find we kind of um we pick on something and we just kind of almost try and keep doing it over and over again. And we keep thinking that there is no ceiling and that we just want to keep pushing on it. Okay. Yeah. yeah no, no, no. Good. Sense. Good. Yeah. So, yeah. No, so I think yeah, working a little bit on the speed work, I think is definitely the next, the next phase for this. Should I potentially like before I, I set a, set a target, I've arbitrarily picked 20 minutes as it's nice nice and round and matches a matches a previous goal but should i go out and because I, I haven't run a let's say a hard um 5k almost time trial um before now should i do that to set a bar and then look to progress it from there or just take it and see how it comes and and then maybe set a date to to run it at some point in the future i think I think there's always two ways of approaching testing. Um, 
in my mind. One is is what you what you said is that sometimes it's really nice to know where we're at. And the thing about testing is that I think often there's some athletes that test a lot. Sometimes a lot of people I know, I, I think, well, actually, sorry, it's a very, very small proportion, test a little bit too much. They test so often um, that I think sometimes they, they get really kind of focused on trying to just trying to improve at the test as opposed to understanding training as a whole. But there is the vast majority that never test. And they kind of, not only does that mean they end up making mistakes potentially around, they, they kind of potentially think they're fitter than they are, maybe in some scenarios, but also they have no, there's nothing to kind of um, focus on, but also keep them motivated. And I think testing and understanding where you are and benchmarking with, with no ego, and that's the critical thing, with no ego, with no thoughts of I can do this or I used to do this is really, really important. So yeah, I think it would be really good to do a kind of time trial as that. It doesn't have to be 20 minutes. It doesn't have to be 5K. But somewhere around that, if that's your goal, is probably worthwhile. Um, but it's a bit like, as I say, if you were doing a 20-minute kind of benchmark test on the bike, very similar, um, just to give yourself an idea, but also then mean that you know when you're training, not only do you know that your training is moving and progressing you forward, um, but sometimes it obviously then can show you the other way. Sometimes if you do testing often and, and something, you know, you've, you felt okay, but the, the, the time has got slower and you, um, you can't, you know, you start to have to look, you delve into maybe why that happened. So that's, that's a, and the, you know, the one or one of the major reasons why testing is good. The other the reason, which is potentially not as applicable in this case, is to set, um, it can be used to set kind of intensities, and paces for various things now i can i agree with that in part sometimes when it comes to cycling but i've I've never really bought into this idea of having rigid paces and sets with regards to running because i think running is a little bit more intuitive it's a bit more fluid and i think i like my runners to more focus on the kind of feeling of running as opposed to i you know i mean there was a this a lot of this stemmed from a, a book um and a, a coach called Jack Daniels and did the kind of V dot formula and that you'd work out your your V dot as he called it based on your a performance and it would give you the exact training paces that you should train at like almost you know to the second and I just think unless you obviously have a track or a very isolated environment where you can use that at the same time I think sticking to those paces were not considering that you know maybe you had a bad night's sleep maybe you slept a bit funny or maybe the you you drove you had to drive three hours a day before and it put you in a sat position for a while that means that the next day you're biomechanically a little bit wonky that that you know those paces don't appreciate that so i think it's good in this instant to have it as that kind of benchmark but making sure that you you go into it with using a using an environment that is repeatable because that is another critical thing if you live somewhere that is flat it's great but if it's windy it change it can change everything so having a repeatable um, thing that you can you can focus or essentially use each time that's always going to produce similar conditions, um, but also going into it with absolutely no um, kind of ego as such in that you, you you take it what it is and you have that as your benchmark and then you kind of move on from there. So it's a, it's very much an up to you. I mean, that's probably a, a long and waffly answer to your question. I think it's useful, um, but it's not essential. Okay, well, I think I'll, uh, I'll certainly wait for this um, delicious bout of weather to pass before I yes. before I consider it. 
um, but it's something that I might might schedule in within um, within the next couple of weeks just to see where I'm at. Because um, it would it just just from a, a personal interest point of view, yeah, just to just to see where I'm at. Um, not that I'm expecting anything particularly special, um, or even close to to that twenty minute mark. It's good just to put a line in the sand, I think, to to um, yeah, the, 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 I can compare and contrast against. Um, yeah, definitely. Forward, so, yeah. Well, that's why I think, I mean, park run used to be a perfect way of doing that because it had that repeatability of the same course. Um, other people around you kind of motivating often with similar, often with the same runners. So that's the other thing is that you, you know, you end up, if you, you have people that go to kind of park run weekly, you're often competing against, you know, it's not a, as much a kind of focused on the kind of competitive side, but everyone else is competing against maybe the people they run of, you know, they they've always competed against. So you get a really good benchmark, a bit like time trialing, really, you know, I, I'm how many times do, you know, go to time trials and it's, you know, the conditions have changed, which means that it's a minute slower, but it's all relative, isn't it? You know, you look at them, a lot of people, I remember um, just going on the tangent of time trialing. Was it, I think, was it Adam Topham tops? That used yeah, to yeah, yeah. yeah, so he I remember was it him that used to do all that used to do a lot of analysis on how his position or how his he used to analyze the nth degree against other people as a way of monitoring everything because he viewed it as the variability of courses meant that the times weren't actually that relevant. But he used to do, you know, real kind of analysis against, you know, seconds the analysis against so many other people that he raced against that he could work out whether he was progressing or not and how he actually performed. And I thought it was always quite remarkable because it was extremely analytic to com- you know, considering you're comparing against, but he had enough people that he was racing against regularly that he could see if he made changes. I think it, if I remember rightly, he even used it for things like aerodynamics, that he made aerodynamic changes. And as a result of what he then had his power and he could actually then work out what, what he did relative to other people. It was quite remarkable, but seemed to, at least for him, work for his the way he motivated himself um, and understood how he was performing. So having our kind of benchmarks against other people can actually be really powerful. And obviously going to a park run as a good example, you know, if you there, you know, for instance, I, I think back in terms of um I used I went to a park run, the the local Leeds one when I lived there, I think for five weeks in a row once. Um and within those five weeks, so over five K and obviously slightly different conditions I ran within 10, 15 seconds each week. So even though the conditions were marginally different, sometimes a wind as a tailwind up the hill, there was a slight hill or sometimes it was a headwind, I was still within 10, 15 seconds. So actually not only did I have that as kind of benchmarking, but also other people could benchmark against those times, if that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah. definitely it's definitely worth worth adding one of those in, I think. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I've got a... Um... And yeah, sort of a, a repeatable route that, that I could use that, that, that would allow that. <clears throat> whilst whilst there is no park run, I'm kind of in between park runs here, where I live. I can uh, um, play with a, a, a couple um, as and when they they do start up again. But it's something that I that I might look at when they when they restart. But... Good. Okay. That sounds fantastic. So we'll we'll leave things there now. Um, so that gives you a few things to to kind of a few sessions to alter a little bit and change and 
we'll um, hopefully catch up in a maybe a couple of months time and see see where things are going from there. Yeah, hopefully with like a, with a bit of a benchmark time, and then we'll know where we're moving. Yeah, sounds good. Brilliant stuff. Thank you very much again, Matt, for for taking part. And um, yeah, we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks Brilliant. a lot. Okay, bye bye.